Do you have a welcome mat in front of your door? May I recommend that we all, as children of God, should have two welcome mats before the Lord. The first welcome mat, which is a very important welcome mat, is concerning the Word of God. That the Word of God is always welcome here. And then secondly, there should be a second welcome mat. That mat should say, I welcome suffering for Jesus Christ. We're going to see that those two welcome mats are the theme of what Paul has to say in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16. A pastor is making house calls, hoping to lead someone to Christ. As he knocked on one door, he could hear someone inside, but the person just didn't answer the door. So he took out his business card, and then he wrote on the business card, Revelation chapter 3, in verse 20, and then placed it on the mat. He left. Several weeks later... At church, that card appeared back on his desk. It seemed that someone had placed it in the offering plate, and the usher gave it to the pastor, but it did not just have the pastor's verse, Revelation 3.20, on it, but now it also had written underneath it Genesis chapter 3 in verse 10. So let me read you those two verses so you can get the exchange here. From the pastor, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And then from the parishioner, Genesis 3.10. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Yeah, I would venture to say there are times and circumstances it's best not to open up the door to a guest. Yet there are two things that each believer should welcome into his or her life. Number one, let me ask you this question. How receptive are you to the living word of God? How open are you? to the living word of God. And yes, I'm speaking to children of God. Number two, do you readily receive suffering into your life like Jesus and his servants? When you receive persecution and suffering comes your way, do you open your arms to it and embrace it because now you get to identify with King Jesus? Let me read to you here from 1 Thessalonians Chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. 
For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us. To speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Your word is alive. And I pray that we would readily receive it into our lives. Today, give us ears to hear. But then hands that will be swift to carry out what you instruct us to do, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Verse 13, for this reason, on account of this, could be the translation given. Paul, with the word for this reason, connects what has just previously been given in chapter 2, 1 through 12. Paul, in chapter 2, 1 through 12, talked about the entrance that he and Silas and then Timothy had later to the Thessalonians. That was built upon chapter 1 and verse 9. He now is going to talk about what happened as a result of their entrance to Thessalonica. We also thank God. The we is emphatic and observed a word, thank, present tense verb. Paul and Silas and Timothy keep on thanking God. They are so appreciative of the saints, those that have come to Jesus Christ. Often when Paul writes to various churches, he expresses his thanksgiving for the saints. Let me just give you uh, a couple of illustrations. In the book of Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, an example of Paul's thanksgiving. In verse 16, Paul says that he did not cease to give thanks for you, the saints at Ephesus, making mention of you in my prayers. And then even in the very next book, the book of Philippians, a verse you probably know very well, chapter one in verse three, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Paul would regularly give thanks for the saints. We're going to see that he's very upset at those Jews, those unsaved Jews that were hostile to him in the gospel. But conversely, he is so appreciative of the saints. And as you work throughout the New Testament epistles, often you will see him giving thanks. Back here in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, he gives his thanks without ceasing. Without pause, he gives thanks. I love a preacher who practices what he preaches. And here as Paul, Silas, and Timothy continually are giving thanks for the saints of Thessalonica, later on, he will encourage them 
to continually give thanks as well. Verse 18, 1 Thessalonians, in everything give thanks. Paul gives thanks, and now he's encouraging the saints to do the same over in chapter 5. So it's just a beautiful thing when you have the meshing. What the leader does is what the follower is observing as well. So to give you thanks without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, there is an objective and then a subjective receiving that takes place. Let me explain the difference between two. When someone says that something is objective, it would be a statement like it is raining outside. Clear facts. You look outside, it's evident. It is raining. That's an objective truth. Then you could have something subjective like, I love the rain. See, it's more of a feeling. I enjoy when it rains. It's it's an emotion. It's a feeling. Here, objectively, Paul is so thankful because these saints did something. They received the word of God. To receive here literally means to draw to oneself, to take to oneself. These individuals heard the preaching in the gospel and they embraced the word of God. Such a beautiful thing. And Paul says, which you have heard from us. Paul understood what he was called to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, In verse 1, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said, when I came to you, Corinthians, I wouldn't get sidetracked. I had a message. I was going to preach that message and stay on that message. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God's word is powerful, and Paul did not hesitate to preach it. In Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. Don't be ashamed of the living and powerful gospel. You need to bring that exact message to the lost. You need to hone your skills to proclaim the gospel. Absolutely. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, each one of you should memorize those verses. Why? Because the elements of the gospel are there. Paul speaks about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. For I delivered to you that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Yes, we need to confront people with their sin. Yes, we need to talk to people about the things of the Lord, but it's all in preparation that they might understand that they are lost for all have sinned 
and come short of the glory of God and then need to embrace the gospel message to save their soul. So important. These individuals receive the word of God, which they heard from Paul and Silas. You welcomed it not as the word of men. Welcomed here to accept an offer that has been given to you. They received it. We saw the same thing back in chapter 1 in verse 6. Why don't we turn there just briefly. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received, there's a term, the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. There was an offer that was made, and the Thessalonians deliberately and readily received it. And notice here, it was not as the word of men. See, that's stated negatively. It wasn't that, but what was it? But as it is in truth, that's positively stated, the word of God, as it is in truth. The first time the adverb here, truth, occurs in the scripture, it's in Matthew 14 and verse 33. There the statement is made after Jesus had calmed the storm. Truly, you are the son of God. And as truly as Jesus is the eternal son of God, so his word is true. We need to embrace it. Paul says, which also effectively works in you who believe. Effectively works. It means to show activity. When you take the word of God, you implant it in your souls. It works. It's a powerful word. It's a living word. It's a transforming word. That's the idea here. So our first point is kind of evident. Welcome the living word into your life. Let me just take a moment and talk to you about what the word of God can do. Number one. It always accomplishes God's purposes. Never fails. That's Isaiah 55 in verse 11. It does not return void. In essence, it accomplishes the mission with which God has sent it upon. Number two, it sets us apart. Sanctify them through the truth. Your word is truth john 17 17 god's word sets us apart it works in our lives profoundly it reminds us that we are to be dedicated to jesus christ and that we are separated unto him the word of god brings freedom in john 8 32 you'll know the truth and the truth sets you free. 
And then in John 8, 36, if you know the son, the son makes you free indeed. If you're in bondage, child of God, it's because the word of God is not in you as it ought to be. Because it is a freer of men. The word of God also counsels us. Psalm 119, 24. It ensures us of spiritual success. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. And whatever he does shall prosper. That's from Psalm 1. God causes us to thrive when we give his word free reign in our minds and in our hearts. Before Joshua tackled Canaan, the promised land, God came and reminded him about the importance of the word of God that brings success. Joshua 8, 1 and 9, to meditate upon a day and night it needs to be your constant source of strength the word of god it matures believers in first peter 2 2 we're told as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word why that you might grow there by Show me a defeated Christian and I'll show you someone that the word of God is not prevalent in that person's life. My exhortation is to start the day with God's word, to end the day with God's word and to keep it central in your thinking throughout the day. It gives us maturity. It also brings about a perfection. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That Second Timothy three sixteen and 17, it equips us, it completes us, it perfects us. And by the way, it will build you up. We find that from Acts chapter 20 and verse 32. As Paul says goodbye to the Ephesian elders, he says, I commend you to God's word, which is able to build you up. How many wimpy Christians do we have? Because they do not have a regular diet of the word of God. And let me tell you, not only will it sustain you for this life, but it'll give you an inheritance in a life to come. Because in Acts 20 and verse 32, Paul not only commended the Ephesian elders to the word, which is able to build them up and to give them an inheritance among those that are sanctified. So it builds you up here. And then as you're living for Christ. You're laying up treasures in heaven. It gives hope. 
Acts 20 and verse 32, because there's a future prosperity as well. So number one, welcome the living word into your life. And some of you seriously right now, you just need to repent. Change your mind. Some of you have not given priority to the word of God that it deserves. And that is why you're not spiritually mature. That is why your emotion defeats you. That is why when any wind of doctrine blows or anybody comes our way and gives us stupid counsel, we fall for it. Because we have not allowed God's word to make us strong. You are without excuse, child of God. His word is sufficient. And if it rules and reigns in your lives, you will be victorious. Colossians 3, 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And not only will it dwell in you, but then you'll have something to guide others with instead of the philosophies of this world. So number one, welcome the living word into your life. Open up your hearts. Set your schedules. That's why I did two devotion books. Devotions on fire and devotions on fire. You too. Why? Because I wanted the individuals I was discipling to get the word in them daily. I wanted them to have the full counsel of God. So you read through the Bible in a year. Why? You need the word of God to know how to live and to build you up daily. Number two. Welcome suffering, imitating Jesus, the prophets and apostles. Welcome suffering, imitating Jesus, the prophets and apostles. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We have been called to this. We are going to suffer if we know Christ. It's part of the Christian life. Notice in verse 14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. See the word for, it connects the powerful word of God with the saints ability to endure while being persecuted. See the word you for you, it's emphatic here. He's talking to them strongly. They need to understand. See, they had become imitators. That means to be a follower of the churches of God, which are in Judea. So Judea here can have the idea of Judea proper to the southern kingdom of Israel, or even it can refer maybe to the entire kingdom of Israel. But either way, the Thessalonians were not alone. There were others who were suffering. So you're not in this alone. And around the world, we have those right now being persecuted for the cause of Christ. We have many imprisoned. We have others who cannot get a job because the government is against their religious belief. And then others will be put to death and are being put to death. We have had a model of suffering before us. It began with Jesus. It continued with his apostles. It's been going on through the prophets and for the saints for 2,000 years. 
It's through many trials we enter the kingdom of God. I have many references here to the suffering that the saints have endured. Turn with me to Acts chapter 14, please. Acts chapter 14. Pick it up in verse 1. Acts chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders by their hands. Now, Paul and Barnabas have had great ministry, and yet there's opposition. Verse 4. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and notice to stone them, they're trying to kill them. They became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Laconia and to the surrounding regions. And they were preaching the gospel there. I could take you from reference to reference to reference where those that preached the gospel suffered, were persecuted, and many put to death. This was part of the Christian life in the past and even now in the present. Speaking of these individuals, notice in verse 15 of 1 Thessalonians 2 who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. Now, I want to point out here that the Greek can connect the Lord Jesus and prophets as victims of murder by the Jews. See, the way the Greek is constructed, that is an option or it can place the prophets, see the term there, the prophets, with us, which would translate, let me give this to you, persecuted the prophets and us. And that would identify Paul with the prophets. Now, I think the second view is accurate here because, number one, not all the Old Testament prophets were murdered. So when you look at verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus Christ, that was true. But then it goes on to talk about the prophets. Well, not all the prophets were killed, but they were persecuted. So I'm just saying that that's, I think, how the structure of the Greek goes. Number two, it would seem unusual placing the Old Testament prophets after Jesus. Why? Because chronologically they came before Number three, persecution seems to be the binding tie with Jesus and the Old Testament prophets and Paul and company. Stephen preaches in Acts 7 in verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Yeah, I think that's the theme here. And it goes on to say, and they do not please God and are contrary. To all men. So these unbelieving Jews who have persecuted the saints, 
don't please God. Notice and are contrary to be set against. It's used of the wind at times during a storm. It's also uh, used of Paul, interestingly, who was Saul in Acts chapter 26, verse 9, because he was against the name of Jesus, but we know that God squared him away. What are these unbelieving Jews doing? Verse 16, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. Forbidding, literally here to cut off. It has the idea to weaken, to hinder or prevent. Godless people try to shut down the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a sad example given to us in 3 John, verse 10, by a man by the name of Diotrephes. He wanted to have the preeminence in all things. He was apparently a church leader that was opposed to the apostle John. And it says in 3 John 10, and forbids, see that's the idea to cut off, forbids those who wish to putting them out of the church. (laughs) Apparently he wanted to rule the church instead of giving the authority to John the apostle who was under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, notice this, that they may be saved. The word saved is very important in scripture, is it not? In the New Testament, by the way, only about 35 to 40% of the uses of being saved refer to little salvation, you know, being delivered from condemnation and eternal damnation. But the term used here clearly speaks of salvation. These individuals are trying to keep the message of the gospel from being shared with the Gentiles. The first time this word saved is used, it's in the book of Matthew. And she will bring forth the son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. That's why Jesus came to save the people from their sins. What's the result of these wicked Jews trying to keep the gospel from the Gentiles? Paul says, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins to fill up it means to complete their judgment was coming they were opposed they were opposed to the good news of the gospel of christ and every time they were rejecting paul silas timothy the prophets they were heaping up judgment for themselves see but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. the word wrath here is not thumos which means an outburst of wrath this is orge which speaks of wrath as a settled state of mind it's the term that is used in first thessalonians 1 10 and five nine that we will be delivered, child of God, from the wrath of God. But these individuals will not escape 
wrath. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, down in verse 6. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, such as those wicked Jews, and to give you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. See, wrath has come upon these individuals, it says, to the uttermost. The idea is a complete destruction. Let's go back for just a moment. Let's think about our first point. Welcome the living word into your life. Have you welcomed that word? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And let's think about this. Have you placed a welcome mat before the word of God? Always permitting it to enter in? Taking it to yourself, making it near? In 1 Corinthians 2.14, see the unsaved man. But the natural man, the soulish man does not receive. See, he doesn't welcome the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. So the unsaved go, I don't want it. That makes no sense to me. I don't want anything to do with it. And they reject it. There's no welcome that to the Word of God. But then you have others like the Corinthians who had been saved now for five or six years should have been spiritually mature. But then look at chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians. And I, and notice the next term, brethren, you're saved, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. They should have grown up from their infancy. They should now be mature, but they are called carnal fleshly. They're, they're babes in Christ still. Verse 2, Paul says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able. What a sad indictment here in verse 3. For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you. Are you not carnal and observe the words here and behaving like mere men? Child of God, I, I want to give you a sober reality. You believed on Christ. He saved your soul. He gives you eternal life. He'll, he'll never take that back. Jesus says, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. John chapter 10 and verse 20. Once you're saved, you have eternal security. That can never change. But then there are choices to be made. Do you want to embrace the word of God? Do you want to have a strong Christian endurance? Or do you want to live as even if you don't know the Lord? The Corinthians did. Come with me back to chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians. 
verses 15 and 16. But he who is spiritual, and see the Corinthians were not, judges all things. It means a thorough examination. How do you know how to judge or appraise all things? The answer, you have to know the word of God. You need to know the book so that when something comes your way, you can tell because you have studied the word of God to know whether that's something you should embrace or reject. The spiritual individual knows the word of God and yet is not understood by anyone. Basically, it's what's going to say. Yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Those that are carnal and the unsaved will never get the spiritually minded person. Verse 16 says this. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the word of God. So we can have the mind of Christ, but you've got to take the word of God in the effort so that it is something that is in you. It's controlling you. It's alive in you. And as we learn, it effectively works in you. My exhortation, my appeal to your will is that the word of God would become central to your life. Even during Jesus' temptations, Matthew 4, Luke 4, Mark 1, we learn that Jesus had been contemplating the scripture, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 8. How is it that he has victory over the wicked one? Matthew 4, 4. But he answered and said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. That proceeds from the mouth of God. We need to embrace every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is what will enable us to lead victorious lives. What's your plan? What time each day do you want to begin your day with the word of God? How will you end your day? And then what will you do throughout the day to remind you of the word? I encourage you to get up and to read the scripture. Jot down that central truth, the employment point, if you will. Put that in your pocket with the key verse and take it with you. Meditate upon it all day. Put it into practice and then may you end the day on it as well. And then secondly, welcome suffering Imitating Jesus to prophets and apostles. Jesus from the very beginning suffered. Do you really understand that? His own relatives thought he was crazy. His own brothers were not believing on him. Sadly, even when Jesus is on the cross, he cannot entrust his mother to one of his half brothers, but needs to go to the apostle John and says, woman, behold your son. Why? Because John was spiritually minded. Some are so close to this world system. 
that they never suffer because they have not made a stand for Jesus Christ. But when you take the word of God and you welcome it and you understand his standards, you have to stand upon them. And that would mean that at that point, there are going to be those that are not pleased with you. Whether unsaved family, friends, co-workers, maybe even the government, who knows? It doesn't make any difference. Because when you stand on the word of God, you're laying up treasures in heaven. No one can rob you of those. Jesus says, don't be afraid of him who can kill the body and do nothing more. Fear God so much that you fear people so little. The fear of man brings a snare, a trap, we're told in Proverbs 29, 25. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe, secure. It's a privilege when people speak poorly of you because your identification in Christ. It is a privilege when individuals hate you and despise you. Because of your identification with Christ, you enter into a very special group. The Old Testament prophets knew rejection and suffering. Jesus knew it. The apostles knew it. The New Testament prophets have known it. May I say, embrace it when it comes your way. And thank God that you are worthy to suffer for the one who suffered for you. So let's welcome the living word into our lives. Make that a priority. Welcome suffering. Imitate Jesus to prophets and apostles. Let's be like the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy and like those dedicated Thessalonian saints who through their lives brought the gospel throughout the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. What examples we have in the scriptures. Paul could thank you. For those saints who loved you, and may we do the same. May we just take time throughout the day thanking you for those dear Christians you've put into our lives. And then, Lord, we'll have those that are opposed to you. May we not fear. Father, may we not be afraid when they hate us as they hated your son. They first hated him, we're told. So, Father, may we embrace our suffering Counted a privilege to identify with the one who freely identified with us. And we thank you, Father, for the reward to come. In Jesus' name, amen.